It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. They were literally popping champagne corks today when Jeff Bezos, his brother, and two other astronauts returned to Earth in that Blue Origin capsule. It was pretty damn exciting to watch. I'll have a lot more to say about this in a couple of moments, but, you know, you've had now Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, Battle of the Billionaires, to go into space, two very different kinds of spacecraft, and um, it was fun. But before we get to that, let me deal with some other things. Uh, many of you who read the New York Times know liberal columnist Nick Kristoff. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's written books. He's uh, mounted these crusades against uh, sex trafficking and all of that. Uh, he has let it be known that he may run as a Democrat for Oregon governor. Uh, I put out a statement saying that a lot of people are coming to him. I have friends trying to convince me that here in Oregon, we need new leadership from outside the broken political system. Oregon has a Democratic governor, Kate Brown, but she is term limited. Uh, I'm honestly interested in what my fellow Oregonians have to say. Apparently, he and his wife, Cheryl Wudun, also a prize-winning uh, journalist, moved back to Oregon two years ago. That's where he's from. They're managing the family farm. Uh, he's been in the New York Times comments since 2001. One person who is not a, a fan of this is Jack Schaefer, political columnist, says, you know, he may be a tremendous journalist. What proof exists that he can raise money, campaign, lead his party, deal with the opposition party, and manage the Oregon bureaucracy? I kind of doubt in the end that he will run, but he's taken a leave from the New York Times uh, while he makes up his mind. I will spare you the latest about the infrastructure. This has been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. I've told you all along, in the end, this thing is going to crash and burn, which fortunately the Blue Origin rocket did not. And uh, what I'm also going to say about this is that now it's like, well, Republicans say it's it's absolutely, you know, not, it's going to fail. And they, there was this whole thing because nobody wanted to raise taxes, or particularly the Republicans didn't want to raise taxes. And so they came up with this sort of face-saving, well, we're going to give more money to the IRS, and that will bring in more revenue to pay for this. And now the Republicans don't even want that. Some you know, anti-GOPers are saying, well, they want to enable tax cheats. But it wasn't even going to do that. It was just a way to claim that you were paying for it. So I'm not going to bore you any further with this. Uh, I will have this item on Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump back in 2017, when he was president, said newspapers, television, all forms of media will tank if I'm not there. Without me, their ratings are going down the tubes. Well, there's some new figures the Washington Post pointed out uh, from Comscore. There were different ways of measuring web traffic. This is only web traffic, not television ratings. Uh, June of 2021 compared to a year ago, June, which was not only, you know, the... Uh, middle the last year of the Trump presidency, but the campaign was going on, the pandemic was going on, online traffic is down by the following. 20% for CNN, 26% for Fox, 34% for the New York Times, 27% for the Washington Post, 27% for NBC, 36% for CNBC, 20% for the Wall Street Journal, 32% for the Huffington Post, and then you really get into the large numbers. LA Times, traffic down 39%. Politico, the traffic for Politico is down 44%. 52% decline for The Atlantic. The Atlantic's lost more than half its online audience. 52% for Time Magazine, 55% for ABC News. All right, let me come back to this. I guess I was particularly interested, well, for a lot of reasons. One is that I grew up watching the space launches. Alan Shepard, the first American to do the suborbital thing. John Glenn and all that. In fact, the... 
Blue Origin capsule is named the New Shepherd after Alan Shepherd. The next one will be called the New Glenn. And, you know, it was just uh, about 11 days ago that I found myself anchoring the landing of Richard Branson's Atlantic Galactic uh, uh capsule. Very different approach in terms of whether you have active pilots or it's all remote control and so forth. But I got And also very different because the Branson flight was an hour and a half. The Bezos launch and landing, 10 minutes. I mean, not even enough time to order a couple of Amazon packages. Uh, so here you have Jeff Bezos. You could see him when the capsule landed, the three parachutes deployed. This is a reusable capsule. It's been up in space before. You see him giving the thumbs up. He comes out. Lots of hugs with everybody, the ground crew uh, going over there. Um, one interesting side note is that uh, he's got a woman who wanted to be an astronaut in 1961. She was not picked for the original U.S. mission because of gender. And now in her 80s, she gets uh, to do this. Um, what was pretty amazing is... You know, you kind of know intellectually that the chances for success are tremendous because they've done this before. They just haven't done it with the crew on board. And yet when you watch that rocket take off and you see it just soaring into space, you realize, you know, these guys are strapped in. They're along for the ride. There's probably a million things that can go wrong, as we have seen in the past space program. Uh, and yet everything seemed flawless. I mean, only from an optics point of view, the only thing that didn't quite work well was the sound system. I mean, the mission control and the Bezos crew could communicate with each other, but it was very scratchy and spotty in terms of uh, what we could hear watching or listening on television. You, it, when they, they experienced about four minutes of weightlessness, zero gravity. Uh, they had the tremendous views, of course, on Earth. And then the rocket, the booster rocket itself, came down. Uh, this, to me, was a technological marvel because in the days of NASA, you know, the rockets would, would be destroyed. They would never attempt to land. Only the uh, capsules would land. The rocket came down sort of vertically and landed in this era, remote area of Texas almost exactly, maybe a couple of feet away from where it had taken off. The capsule, too, landed just where it was supposed to land, and it was picture perfect. A tremendous triumph for Bezos, who's had his ups and downs uh, with Amazon, with the tabloid stories about his personal life and all of that. Uh, this changes the conversation and um, look forward to hearing more. One thing I, I noted, he did a round of morning show interviews uh, yesterday uh, and he was asked, you know, isn't this just kind of like billionaires, you know, getting thrill uh, by spending a lot of money? And Bezos said, um, it's the job of this generation to build that infrastructure, meaning for space travel. Of course, people said, look, we have so many problems here on Earth. This is from the Today Show. And they're right. And we need to do both. We've always done both. We need to focus on the here and now, and we need to look to the future. So we're building a road to space. So he was basically saying, look, the criticism is valid. You know, all this money I'm spending, that Branson's spending, and Elon Musk may be spending on exploring space could be spent on problems here at home, but, you know, using the argument that we can do both. Let's move on to number two. Uh, Facebook, COVID, the Biden White House. This thing has taken so many strange twists and turns. So one of the things that I've been saying is that it always Mark Zuckerberg always seems to be in this position, whether it's Russian disinformation in 2016, whether it's um, hate speech, bullying speech, lies, propaganda, 
He's always in. He's always playing catch up. He's always saying, "Well, we're working on it. Oh, we removed all these posts. We're going to remove more." It, for many years, he didn't want to do it. Didn't want to spend the money. Didn't view himself as a. Uh, didn't view Facebook as a media company. Oh, we're just like the public utility. We're just like the electric company. People go on. They say whatever they want. We well, can't get away with that anymore. And I think COVID nineteen has really dramatized that. And so, uh, New York Times has a piece saying that at the start of the pandemic, there were a group of scientists at Facebook who talked to executives and said, we need more resources to measure the prevalence of misinformation about COVID-19. And they wanted to figure out how many Facebook users were seeing false or misleading information. It was going to be complicated. It would take a year or more, according to sources. But they said, you know, if we hire some new people and we reassign some existing employees, we can better understand how falsehoods spread on the platform. Well, that wasn't approved. The executives didn't approve it. The team was never told why. And now more than a year later, Facebook is in this firestorm. Why can't you do a better job? And is in this battle with the Biden White House. You know, the White House, other federal agencies have been pressuring Facebook to hand over the data about how these anti-vaccine narratives spread online and have accused Facebook of holding key information. That's when you had on Friday President Biden coming out and saying they're killing people. Now, clearly, that comment, uh, I guess, made largely out of frustration, was not going to be allowed to stand. So yesterday came the inevitable walk back. Biden was asked again about this by a reporter, and Biden said, oh, well, uh, Facebook isn't killing people. These 12 people are out there giving misinformation. Anyone listening to it is getting hurt by it because it's killing people. It's bad information. And then he says, I hope that Facebook isn't taking it personally. Okay, you've accused the company of being an accomplice to murder. Uh, I think any human being with a pulse would take that personally, and Facebook has been pushing back. Um, the 12 people is a reference to a study. He hadn't explained this at the time. I talked about this on the air on Fox yesterday. Um, study by the, the group to counter digital hate or something pretty close to that found that 12 people are responsible for almost two-thirds of the misinformation about COVID-19 in social media, not just Facebook. Uh, so that's what Biden says he was referring to. Um, now, Facebook is saying the Biden administration should stop finger-pointing, stop blaming Facebook for the, because it missed its goal of vaccinating 70% of American adults by July 4th. Well, here it is July 20th, and we're still stuck at 68% uh, getting at least one shot, and I'll come back to that. Facebook is not the reason the goal was missed, said Guy Rosen, Facebook vice president of integrity. Um, and so, you know, this is again and again and again, Facebook finds itself in this situation because it won't be transparent about what it's doing. It's always playing catch up. It's always saying we need to do better. Uh, here, here's the name of the group, Center for Countering Digital Hate. And the chief executive of that group says they need to open up the black box that is their content ranking and content amplification architecture. Take that black box, open it up for audit by independent research and government. And Facebook doesn't want to do that. Now, one of the reasons I think Facebook seems secretive and mysterious is that while they put out statements, and so when you know I did this on Media Buzz on Sunday, and I said, here's the Facebook statement, and here's what a Facebook executive said anonymously, they don't put people out on TV. 
Why doesn't Zuckerberg, this is a huge crisis for the social network, why isn't he out there talking about this? Why doesn't he send Sheryl Sandberg out there to talk about this? They're happy to go on TV and they have something to promote when Sheryl Sandberg writes a book. And there was a story recently that, that her role has been more limited, so maybe she's not allowed to do that. Why isn't this vice president on Facebook? As far as I know, since this whole thing blew up, nobody from Facebook has been interviewed. And Zuckerberg's the founder. He's the CEO. He's the guy who says Facebook is a force for good. He should be out there answering questions. And they don't do it because they can't. They don't have good answers for a lot of these questions. So they stay off TV. And so all of the critics get to come on and all of the skeptics get to come on. And, you know, Jen Psaki or President Biden get to weigh in on Facebook's role, Facebook's malfeasance. And by the way, I'm not saying anybody with an anti-vaccination point of view shouldn't be allowed on Facebook. There's about 800,000 people who are, you know, that's their point of view. Vaccines are dangerous. As long as they're not outright lying about it, uh, I think it's a different situation. Uh, as long as they're not saying that vaccines enable Bill Gates to implant a microchip and anybody gets the shot, um, I think uh, you know, it should be allowed because suppressing information is not the way to go. By the way, there's an Axios poll out today of, of the unvaccinated. What would it take for you to get vaccinated? Um, getting the shot in your doctor's office. 55% say not at all likely. What if we gave you time off? 63%, not at all likely. Celebrity or public figure endorsing the vaccine? 70%, not at all likely. So it's a really tough um, dilemma for the country. And that brings me to number three, Ross Douthat, columnist in the New York Times. He goes on to say the sheer numbers of unvaccinated Americans, about 80 million people in this country, means that all of these explanations, oh, you know, they watch Fox, oh, it's the right-wing media, oh, they love Trump and Trump isn't doing enough, none of that can really uh, explain why 80 million people aren't doing what I think they should do, what, what a lot of scientists think they should do, what Anthony Fauci thinks they should do, what the President of the United States should do, what the former President of the United States actually, though he doesn't uh, speak out as much as he might, thinks they should do, and that is get these life-saving vaccinations. So Douthat goes through this and he says, um, you know, there, there's not just a political divide, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. There's an education divide on who gets it, an age divide, a gender divide, a racial divide, and an urban-rural divide. I mean, this is a deep systemic problem. So Douthat comes up with this idea and he says, look, uh, my best idea here is the simplest. We should pay people to take the vaccine. Just pay them with big, fat gobs of cash. Um, now, along with doubts of medical ethicists, he says, this has its own problems because uh, the anti-vaxxers say, see, it's so risky, they got to pay people to take it. But, you know, rather than have a patchwork of public and private mandates, uh, rather than have lottery tickets or free beer or free donuts or free weed, you got one program. You know, there's evidence, he says, that even 100 bucks will move the needle for people who are hesitant to get this vaccine. And he says if 10 or 20 million people, you know, accepted this offer, that would be a rounding error in the, given the trillions that Biden wants to spend on infrastructure, would pay for itself in terms of reassuring the, the stock market. Stock market went down over 700 points yesterday on the Dow because people are worried about the Delta variant and the continued difficulties. And by the way, the COVID cases I watch this every day, now up to 35,000 a day. It had been 20, then it went up to 25, then up to 30. That's a almost 200% increase in the last two weeks. Again, nothing near the peak, but something to be worried about. Um, 
Look, I don't think we should pay people to do it. I don't think that's the answer. Um, but Douthat argues that whatever the ethical downside of just giving people money to do this, I don't see how, he says, imposing lockdowns and long-term school closures with all their negative effect on lower-income workers and parents can pass an ethical test, but paying people to get vaccinated does not. Or you can all debate that. Last night, Fox News Channel, prime time, Sean Hannity, take it seriously, he said of COVID. You also have a right to medical privacy. Doctor-patient confidentiality is also important. It absolutely makes sense for many Americans to get vaccinated. I believe in science. I believe in the science of vaccination. And I read this to you because it follows uh, Steve Ducey, the co-host of Fox and Friends. Uh, He gets a little bit of a write-up in the Washington Post today uh, for saying on the air the day before, I believe, yesterday. And he said this more than once. If you have the chance, get the shot. It will save your life. Too many people just simply saying, oh, Fox is against vaccines. Well, you know, look at what some people are saying. But it's hardly a monolith. And even those people are just saying, look, I'm raising questions. But when you got, you know, major anchors on the channel like Hannity and Ducey and others and, you know, uh, other Fox News anchors, including John Roberts, including um, Harris Faulkner, you know, joined in making a PSA. I talk about it whenever I can. I talk about it on the podcast whenever I can. So I just raise this because a lot of times it's a shorthand for people who don't like Fox News to say, yeah, Fox is opposed to vaccines. And it's just a lot more complicated than that. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Speaking of Fox, former President Trump took a shot at Brett Baer uh, for reporting on special report, what everybody else is reporting about the problems with this so-called Arizona audit that Trump is so high on. And he says, the same anchor uh, at the desk the night Fox called Arizona for Joe Biden now wants you to believe there was no fraud. That anchor was Brett Baer. Well, yeah, he was leading the coverage. He didn't make the decision on on, uh, Arizona, which turned out to be right, by the way. Um, but he was the one who told Fox News viewers about it. So last night on Special Report, my colleague Brett did a fact check. Former President Trump says 74,000 mail-in ballots were received that were never mailed. That claim appears to be based on data that does not show the total mail-in vote and does not reflect the total early vote either, something acknowledged by the third-party audit himself, itself. Excuse me. Uh, Brett Baer went on to say that the Trump claim that all access logs to the voting machine were wiped out or wiped was debunked back in May by the Republican chairman of the county board of supervisors. Trump claims the election server was hacked during the election. Maricopa County says its election server is not connected to the Internet. Independent auditors found no evidence of a breach there. So, you know, he was sort of prodded into doing this because of the way that Donald Trump you know, singles out. And he's done. This. He's gone after lots of people. He went after me a couple of times. He goes after Chris Wiles. Not to mention all the people on CNN, New York Times, MSNBC, fake news. You know, you've heard it for years. Uh, by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene was suspended by Twitter about 12 hours for posting misinformation about COVID-19. Uh, critics says she should have been suspended for longer. She says it's not necessary for non-obese people and those under 65 to get the vaccine. Twitter called that misleading, slapped the tag on it, but she's back on. All right, number four, a bit of a spat, speaking of Twitter, between tennis star Naomi Osaka and Megyn Kelly, who now has a show on Sirius XM and a very successful podcast uh, 
my former colleague at Fox News and, of course, uh, formerly a host of the, I don't know, third hour, fourth hour, sixth hour of the Today Show before leaving NBC. So this goes back to the way Naomi Osaka deals with the press. And, of course, I don't have to repeat the whole backstory, but you know that she bailed out of the French Open and ultimately Wimbledon. Uh, because she didn't want to do the press conferences. And then she revealed that she suffers from depression, that she'd been battling depression for years. People had a little different opinion of it. But since then, she's done a lot of media. A lot of media in forums that she can control. She was on the cover of Time magazine with an essay that she wrote. So obviously she's controlling the message there about why, you know, her more a more nuanced explanation of her dealings with the press. And she actually likes the press, but this is why it's difficult for her. And so on and so on and so on. So, what else has she done? She just launched a Netflix do- uh, documentary. Uh, she was on the cover of Time. She also has appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So, all of this is prompting some detractors, critics to say, well, Naomi Osaka doesn't seem to have any problem doing media. She only seems to have a problem taking questions from independent journalists as opposed to, you know, wearing a nice swimsuit for the cover of SI, or doing an essay where, you know, she doesn't have to answer questions from Time reporters. She just gets to say what she wants in the forum of Time magazine. So, for example, Clay Travis, conservative radio host, founder of OutKick, uh, uh, tweeted the following. Since saying she's too introverted to talk to the media after tennis matches, Naomi Osaka has launched a reality show, a Barbie, didn't know about that, and now is on, on the cover of the SI swimsuit issue. That prompted Megyn Kelly to jump in and comment on it, and she's been critical of Osaka. And Osaka fired back on Twitter. She said all of her magazine covers were shot last year, months before the whole controversy of withdrawing from the French Open, to focus on her mental health. And she's supposed to play, by, by the way, in the Tokyo Olympics, not going to be playing in front of any fans. And I've, as I've mentioned, I mean, now we have a couple of people on the gymnastics team testing positive for COVID. Um, we have uh, other American athletes who aren't able to participate, and it's a shame. Um, so... Here's what Naomi Osaka had to say to Megyn Kelly. Misspells her name, by the way. Seeing as you're a journalist, this is about the the timing of the magazine covers, I would have assumed you would take the time to research what the lead times are for magazines. If you did that, you would have found out I shot all my covers last year. Instead, your first reaction is to hop on here and spew negativity. Do better, Megyn. And then, with that, Naomi Osaka blocked Megyn Kelly. And here's what Megyn has to say. Poor at Naomi Osaka blocked me while taking a shot at me. Guess she's only tough on the courts. She's apparently arguing that that she shot her many covers before publicly claiming she was too socially anxious to deal with press. Truth is, she just doesn't like questions she can't control. Admit it. Guess she's only tough on the courts. Wow. Uh, Well, there it is, a frank, candid uh, exchange of views between a very prominent journalist and the woman who is the top-earning female athlete in any sport on the planet. I mean, Naomi Osaka made more than $50 million last year, all these blue chips endorsements. So I'm hoping that she can use this period not to fight with people and block people on Twitter, 
but to work her way back to actually taking questions from the press. You know, she says it's not something she wants to st stop all the time, but that she felt, you know, given the pressures, I guess, around competing in the French Open, that she didn't want to do the press conferences. And, and as I've said many times, these press conferences are not that tough. Well, how did you feel about that shot? And, and did you, you know, if, if she loses, could you have done better? I and mean, what was wrong with your backhand? And if she wins, uh, tell us about your training. How did it feel at that moment? I mean, it's just not the toughest thing to do in the world. Now, number five, point of personal privilege here. Uh, some of you uh, may be well aware that I am and have been for many decades a huge, you can call me a fanatic, a huge fan, aficionado, uh, booster of the Beatles. And particularly Paul McCartney, who now, you know, in his late 70s, is really kind of become kind of the spokesman He's one of the two surviving Beatles, of course, along with Ringo Starr. The, the, the keeper of the flame, the spokesman for the legacy. And he's doing more and more media now to kind of, you know, we had like the 50th anniversary of certain Beatle albums and so forth. I mean, unless, I, a couple things I want to say about this before I explain to you why I'm doing this. It's amazing to me that 50 years later, um, young kids are still into Beatles songs because their parents were into it. They listen to it. I mean, they're into lots of other kinds of music too. When I say young kids, I mean kids six years old, seven years old can can sing along to the songs, even if it's just Yellow Submarine. It's also amazing to me, you had to have lived through it. You had to remember um, when I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You and those rudimentary songs that they, the mop tops and the first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show in early 1964, a show that was watched by parents and their children, um, how they ultimately changed music. You know, originally it was thought that they were a fad. You know, they would have these concerts and the teenage girls would scream and they couldn't hear each themselves play and nobody could hear them. And then you had the evolution, you know, with the more sophisticated albums as John Lennon and Paul McCartney and, and ultimately George Harrison evolved and matured as songwriters, as song producers with the producer George Martin. Uh, and you had, um, you know, Revolver and you had the groundbreaking album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, this faux band created by the Beatles and Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album, the first double album. And then, of course, Abbey Road and finally Let It Be uh, and, and all of the influence that this had. So Hulu has now a six-hour series in which McCartney is sitting in this go-to-control room with a producer named Rick Rubin. And they just have this fascinating conversation about music. There's a lot of clips uh, that no one has seen before, very few people have seen, I, sh I should say, uh, from the early days. Paul talks about how he first met George on a bus in Liverpool, chance meeting. He ends up becoming the lead guitarist of the Beatles. He was introduced to John by a mutual friend. He talks a lot about playing the bass. He was an incredibly innovative bass player, also uh, very good on piano. And we see him at the piano and just doing the opening simple structure chords. By the way, he says he can't read music. Even now, he can't write music. He obviously can write tremendous uh, hits, but he can't, you know, and someone else has to translate it into musical language. Um, talks about meeting the Maharishi and that was the influence on the Beatles. He talks about how hard they worked at harmonies and then you know, particularly um, Lennon and McCartney, you know, Paul would always take the high note, John the lower notes, and then George sometimes would 
join in for three-part harmony, and you see a lot of examples of that. And meanwhile, Rick Rubin is working the board, and he plays up, he lowers everything out, and he plays up the bass, and you can hear how crucial the bass is on some of those songs. And Paul just sits down and bangs out the chords to Lady Madonna, or let it be instantly recognizable around the world. Talks about who they were influenced by, how they got to meet Little Richard, who was a huge rock star when they were just, as he put it, kids from Liverpool. How they were, particularly in terms of harmonies, were very influenced by the Beach Boys. Very different kind of music, obviously. And then they got into a little bit of a competition. Uh, the Beatles would try to do better than the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys would see an album like uh, Revolver and then produce an album like Pet Sounds, which was critically acclaimed, although not necessarily a commercial success. The Everly Brothers, uh, two guys who just had tremendous melding of their voices. And he talked as well about fame. And people, a lot of people who don't know the history look back at the Beatles uh, McCartney, Harrison, Lennon, Starr, and think they were just this overnight sensation. You know, Paul says, first of all, they didn't want to come to America until they had a number one hit in America because they had seen so many popular British groups come to the United States and then just fail and disappear without a trace. So finally, they got the call, I want to hold your hand as number one on the charts. You know, they had these billboard charts in the U.S. of A., and that's when they agreed to come I guess do the Sullivan Show, maybe uh, play some of those early uh, stadium concerts. Um, but he also said, you know, they put in their proverbial 10,000 hours. You know, the four of them, Ringo was the last addition to the group, obviously, um, you know, spent out, spent so many months, they would ride around on the bus, they would go to a place like Hamburg, and they would play in the Cavern Club, and then they would play all these dates in London. And, you know, uh, people would come, they would get drunk, they had a hardcore of fans. Jimi Hendrix, by the way, another uh, major influence who they uh, got to meet, who, who played Sgt. Pepper at his own concert two days after the album came out. He learned it and he played it like nobody was expecting that. Uh, so anyway, he, he felt that they were better able to handle this superstardom when it erupted and it was just you know it went like like one of bezos's rockets because they spent all that time honing their music working on their harmonies playing the small clubs uh they paid their dues they matured uh, even some of those early songs you listen to now all my love and please please me i mean they're pretty well constructed pop songs and it just takes you back i haven't heard all of it i listened to about an hour and a half of it it's a tremendous there's another beatles documentary coming this fall and you know as i said paul mccartney i think trying to explain how it seemed from the inside to talk about the music to talk about his late friends john and george and to explain this phenomenon that continues to influence music today, which was The Beatles. And with that, you can all go sign on to Hulu or get an account there. Um, thank you for listening uh, to this vast, you know, from space to rock and roll. Uh, you can subscribe on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, on your Amazon device, or Apple iTunes. See you back here tomorrow with more Buzz News. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.